Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Phil Rosenberg. Hi, Phil. Hi, yeah. Now, this week, an Ig Nobel Prize has been awarded to the man who discovered why woodpeckers don't get brain damage when they hammer into trees, and Phil will be telling you why that is. Also, we'll be hearing about genetically engineered bacteria that can protect a person from HIV infection, and a vaccine that you mustn't sniff at, and that's because it can abolish allergies. We and, al- and also this week, we'll be exploring the science of cells and how they can turn into cancers. We'll be hearing from Gerard Evan and Fran Balkwell, and our own Kat Arne, who's in Birmingham for the National Cancer Research Institute Conference, which kicks off today. So if you have any questions about cells and how they work, cancer and how to treat cancers, just get in touch. We'll give you the number shortly. And if you're in the mood for winning something, uh, there's the, here's this week's teaser. We want to know where in the home would you normally find acetic acid? And it's great uh, prizes up for grabs this week. We've got a build-your-own-home planetarium kit and some signed copies of my book, Naked Science. So if you want to have a go at that, 08459 25 2000 is the phone number, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Okay, first this week, um, in a parody of the real Nobel Prize awards, the IG Nobel Prizes are awarded for scientific achievements that make you laugh and then make you think. Now, ten awards are passed out this Thursday at an awards ceremony, and this one is actually my personal favourite. It's the case of why did woodpeckers not become concussed when they're bashing around on a tree? Now, actually, it was the late Philip May at the University of California in Los Angeles and Ivan Schwab of the University of California at Davis. They shared the, this Ig Nobel Prize for ornithology after their investigations of exactly how it is that woodpeckers don't become concussed. Now, I mean, if a human tried to do the same thing, bashing its head against a tree repeatedly, basically, brain would slosh, your brain would slosh around inside your head and it would give you a serious concussion. And, and Philip May wondered why on earth this didn't occur in woodpeckers. Now what they found was that woodpeckers have got this really small brain with a really smooth surface that's really good at cushioning the impact and, and absorbing the impact and, and doesn't rattle around so much. It's got, the skull is actually made of this sort of foam material, spongy bone, that actually helps cushion this blow and also hold the berm, holds the brain basically really firmly in place, holds it really tight, stops it sloshing around. A bit like sort of packing if you sort of roll stuff up when you move house in newspapers and all that. Exactly the same sort of effect. And in addition... They actually have a, a special evolutionary feature that actually stops the eyes popping out as they do it. They've actually got a membrane that actually tightens a millisecond before they hit the tree. It literally stops the, stops the eyes popping out. Kind of like when you uh, sneeze and you blink to hold your eyes in almost. Exactly the same thing with a woodpecker. I know that when they were doing that research, Phil, that they had to get some very fast photography because this is back in the 1970s they first started looking at this, wasn't it? And they had this camera taking two to 4,000 shots a second of these woodpeckers making their, their strikes on trees. 
trees. And one of the other interesting findings was that we know that in humans, if they're involved in a car accident, when the head suddenly slows down, you get this kind of rotational injury to the brain, a bit like you unscrewing the lid off a jar, because different bits of the brain weigh different amounts, so they have different amounts of what's called inertia. Some bits of the brain have a different momentum to others. And as a result, when the, the brain suddenly slows down, you get this twisting effect, and this tears tiny nerve fibres inside. Now, you can minimise that effect if the woodpecker lines his head up in a very straight line with the tree. And what they found was exactly that. Just as he blinks and closes his eyes prior to the impact, he also keeps his head very rigidly still and hammers into the tree in a dead straight line to Pointing minimize exactly that, at the that rotation injury. At. Absolutely. You know, th there was one Ig Nobel Prize that we reported on this program a couple of years ago that really, really floated my boat, and I, I thought it was hilarious. Um, it was about country music, and it was a couple country of people... Music. Yeah, a couple of people got the Ig Nobel Prize for medicine a couple of years ago because they went around, and, and it's relevant because we're a radio program, um, they went around various radio stations, and they looked at how much country music they played, and then they looked at the suicide rate of the listenership. <laughs> and what they found was that people were much more likely to commit suicide if they were listening to radio stations that played a lot of country music. Well, that sums up my feelings for country music, I'm afraid. The only so. people that were immune to the effect um, were actually people if they were Afro-Caribbean. So they seem to be immune to this country music killing effect. Oh, so, well. you know, so you've Special been warned, evolutionary so. trait. Now, this is a very interesting story which has emerged from Stanford University in the States. It's a guy called Peter Lee, and he's found a way of modifying the good bacteria we naturally carry in the body to turn them into a very potent weapon against HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. Now, what they've done is to borrow from biology. This is biomimetics at its best, if you like. They found a, a particular substance called cyanovirin N, which is made by blue-green algae. Now, the, the algae make it because it's a very useful signalling molecule. They use it to talk inside their cells and between cells. But if you mix it with HIV, it's a very good anti-HIV substance. It blocks the ability of HIV to lock onto cells in our body and to get in. So what they've been able to do is to borrow the gene that enables these algal cells to make this stuff and inserted it into lactobacilli. Now, they're the bugs that are in yoghurts that you eat to aid okay, digestion. So the stuff you buy from supermarkets. They're in the kinds of things that they're, they're naturally found all over the body and they grow in the human genital tract quite naturally. So by adding this gene to these bugs, what you've got is your own homemade anti-HIV preparation. And why they think this could be very, very useful is because you could add this to somebody... They would then produce these bugs, they would flourish in the female genital tract, releasing large amounts of this substance, which if you are exposed to HIV and you don't have other more effective means of contraception, could actually prevent you from being infected. And actually, if you think about it, there are 40 million people in the world who are currently infected with HIV. It's predicted by 2010 to reach 100 million people at least who have either died or are infected with HIV. And most of those infections are taking place in third world countries, and lots of them, 70% in Africa. And the reason they're happening there is because it's a rural community, they don't have access to good health care, they don't have access to preventative medicine, and they don't have access to condoms. So something like this could actually make a big difference. So it could actually be a, a biology that goes growing inside of you, actually preventing a barrier preventing the HIV from actually getting a grip. The idea is that these bugs would colonise you in exactly the same way as you're naturally colonised by the same sort of species. You just have a slightly genetically tweaked version that gave you this additional protection. Wow, fantastic. Uh, what we've also got today is uh, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbit has just reached Mars. This is a NASA mission, uh, and it's got on it, on board, the most powerful camera we've ever sent to another planet. Uh, now, the idea behind this mission is to examine the climate and the seasonal changes on Mars and also look at Martian geology and look at landing sites for possible future missions, future landing missions on Mars. Now, to do this, as I said, it's got the most powerful camera ever sent to another planet. And actually, it managed to take a picture this week of one of the 
NASA rovers that are already on the surface. And actually, not only could it see the rover, which is about the same size as a milk float, but actually the, the rover itself has got a little stick on top with a, two cameras on top to give it a really good sort of field of view, like nose over the parapet almost. Uh, you can actually see the shadow of this stick with the two cameras on top. Why does they need something that powerful, though, Phil? Is that really helpful? Well, the idea is that not only can you see... Um, you know, details on Mars, but you can really get a grip of the geology that's going on, so tiny sort of features. And they do say the smallest thing they can see on Mars with these cameras will be 90 centimetres. And also, of course, if you're looking for a landing site for something, it only takes one big rock. If you're on a big cushioned air balloon, essentially landing on Mars, if you hit something big and sharp, then that could really end the fate of the mission. And that maybe is what happened to, to the Beagle mission that, that failed a few years ago. So something like that really is a real bonus to, to looking for those kind of landing sites. Now, do you get allergies? I do. I suffer quite strongly from cat allergies, particularly, actually. Well, there's a company in Sweden, uh, sorry, in Switzerland, called Cytos Biotechnology, and they may have the thing for you because they reckon that the key to curing allergies may be to fool the body into thinking you're suffering from a bacterial infection. They've come up with a vaccine which is based on a piece of DNA they've nicked from a mycobacterium. Now, that's a kind of bacterium that, that's similar to TB, tuberculosis. Okay. So what they've done is to build a virus-like particle which contains this bit of, this bit of bacterium from the TB-like bacterium, this bit of DNA, and you put that into the body. And what it does is to fool the immune system into thinking you're being attacked by bacteria. This has a very strong suppressive effect on the part of the immune system that drives allergy while stimulating the part of the immune system okay. that makes you respond to bacteria. And the idea is that what you can do is to switch off the pro-allergy side of the immune system whilst maintaining the bacterially attacking side of the immune system. And they've done a simple set of tests on just 10 volunteers to start with who had an established hay fever, grass pollen allergy. They gave them a course of six injections, one a week, over a six-week period. Mm -hmm. Five of them managed to complete the course before this year's pollen season kicked in. And what they found amongst those five was a massive improvement in their allergy symptoms. And when they exposed them in the, in the laboratory to a grass pollen, they were a yep. hundredfold less sensitive. Afterwards. Wow. So almost, that so, almost sounds like it's almost gone, to be perfectly honest. Now, in other news this week, if you'd like to catch up with some of the other exciting scientific discoveries that are happening, they can be found on the Nature podcast, which we also produce. And that's available from nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast. Excellent. So what we can do now is look at uh, our teaser. Where in your home would you normally find acetic acid? That's acetic acid. Where would you, where would you find that? I've heard so far from Sybil in Sawston and Paul in Deerham who say the answer is acidic acid. Not really sure where you're coming from. That. Well, have another think about that, Sybil. Les in Over is definitely on the right lines. Anne in Colchester says blue crystals, but blue crystals of what, Am? Need to know. If you reckon you know the answer, 08459 25 2000. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the naked scientists. Now, you've all heard of Pop Idol, but now meet the scientific equivalent. It's called Science Idol, and the aim of this competition is to produce a cartoon that will highlight how politicians in America are attempting to distort, and this is worrying, the conclusions and suppress the results reached by US scientists on issues about things like climate change and pollution. Now, in all, over 400 scientists and artists have put pen to paper, and joining us now from the Union of Concerned Scientists tell us more, here's Michael Halpern. Hi, Michael. Hi, Chris. Thank you for joining us. Why did you need to set this competition up? Well, you know, we thought it would be a good idea to, to set a competition up like this. Just like the Ig Nobel Prize, you have an opportunity to laugh at political interference in science and learn a little bit about how important science is to uh, decisions about... But are politicians really meddling in science? Do you believe that? 
Uh, you know, we, we've seen that happen a lot in, the, in recent years. The people that lead uh, scientific agencies here in the United States, like the Environmental Protection Agency or the Center for Disease Control, um, have increasingly inserted themselves into the scientific process. And I can give you a, a couple of examples. Uh, first of all, climate change, you know, something you talk a lot about on this show. Uh, the Bush administration has really consistently tried to downplay the threat of global warming, and as a result, they've prevented scientists from talking to the press about potential links between hurricane strength and global warming. Or how would you do that, though, Michael? Because how would you stop scientists talking to the press? Because you're talking to us, for example. That story's mm-hmm. out there. So how would they try and stifle the dissemination of the information? Right. Well, you know, this, these scientists that work for federal agencies operate under a different set of rules, and, and they are required to um, only speak to the press when they're allowed to by, uh, by their superiors, by the political appointees who, uh, who are their bosses. And if if the political appointees don't like what they're going to say, they can tell the scientists not to talk, and if the scientists talk, then they, could, they risk being, uh, being canned or, or fired. Now, obviously, the UK often stands shoulder-to-shoulder with America. Do you think the same thing's happening here and further afield? Uh, well, no, we haven't done any investigation into what's happening in the UK, but obviously we do know that uh, any sort of interference in the scientific process um, hurts the way science is done and decreases our capacity to respond to important and complex environmental and health problems. Now, while setting up a cartoon competition is, uh, I think, a good way to raise awareness, is making light of the situation when it's actually quite serious like this the best approach, do you think? I think it's a, a, a very good approach because it allows people to approach the issue in a, in a very accessible way. You know, they see a cartoon, and the cartoon pretty much says everything, uh, everything about the issue. And then once you've been introduced to the issue, you can really learn more about it. So uh, just having a look at the winning entry, Michael, it's quite funny. It's got a scientist with his pen and pencil uh, in his laboratory, and it's got a politician or a bureaucrat holding a grant form, and the politician's saying, you're completely free to carry out whatever research you want as long as you come to these conclusions. This sounds like the, the sort of mantra from Ford, isn't it? You can have any colour you want as long as it's black. Right, exactly. You know, this is obviously an absurd sort of practice. Scientists need to come to whatever conclusions the science says, not, not what the political appointee tells them to do. And the artist who drew this cartoon, once he, once he won, the contest and he started getting phone calls and emails from uh, other scientists uh, at his university to say, wow, you know, this is exactly how I feel sometimes and I'm not really allowed to do the research that I want to do and it's enormously frustrating to me. So Michael, once you've sort of got your press coverage and people are aware of the situation, how are you actually going to try and execute a change though so that politicians stop meddling and, and scientists both in America and probably elsewhere are going to stop getting this degree of interference? Well, that's a very good question. It's, it's a tough problem to deal with. Uh, and what we've done is we've brought a lot of scientists to meet with um, members of Congress and, and other politicians here in Washington, D.C., uh, to talk about the problem and to, um, to educate uh, their members of Congress about how important it is to keep the scientific process free and unfettered. And so we're promoting you know, more protections for scientists uh, in the federal government to be able to publish and uh, speak about their research and uh, just a, a better way for uh, decision makers to access scientific advice. Thank you very much. That's Michael Halpern from the University of Concerned uh, Scientists in America. Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, worrying, isn't it, to think that the people that are deciding who gets money to spend on research actually then get told what they can and can't say on the basis of what their research shows. It's the Naked Scientists, Chris and Phil, and we're here with you uh, for about the next 45 minutes. Our subject for discussion later this evening is the science of cells and how they work and how they can go wrong with cancer. And we'll be talking to Gerard Evan and Fran Bulkwell later on the programme. Phil. 
Now it's time for Kitchen Science. This week, Derek's in Cambridge with student helper Mary and Professor Chris Muirhead from the School of Physics and Astronomy at Birmingham University. They're going to be experimenting with gases and liquid nitrogen, so unfortunately, don't do this one at home. Hi, Derek. Hello there. Uh, welcome to Hills Road Sixth Form College, where we've come this week to do some amazing experiments with uh, some balloons and some other stuff as well, so uh, please hold on for that. Uh, we've also got one of the uh, new-ish recruits uh, to uh, the Naked Scientist Kitchen Science team. Uh, would you care to introduce yourself, please? I'm Chris Muirhead from Birmingham University. Thank you very much, Chris. And Chris has set up some experiments. And also to do the experiments for us and to comment on them and to predict what happens, we've got a volunteer from Hills Road Sixth Form College. Could you tell us uh, your name and what year you're in, please? Well, I'm Mary Burgess and I'm in Lower Sixth. So then, Chris, what have you got and what are we about to do with it? Well, what I've got here is an ordinary helium balloon of the sort that you'd buy in a fairground or um, from a vendor in the street. And it's a, a pink helium balloon about 15 centimetres in diameter. Okay then, and also you've brought with you a a special liquid which is currently on the floor of the lab that we're in and uh, it's in a kind of a metal canister which is about two feet tall and, uh, well, what's special about this liquid? What is it exactly? Well, this is liquid nitrogen. Uh, You know that the air is about 80% nitrogen and this is nitrogen that has been cooled down to a temperature of about minus 196 Celsius and at that point it turns from a gas into a liquid. Okay, so that's, as Chris said, we've got this liquid here, which is at minus 196 degrees C, so it's extremely cold. Now, what are you about to do with that balloon? What I'm going to do with the balloon is I'm going to lower it into the liquid nitrogen, and we're going to watch what happens to it. Okay, now, just before you do that, let's ask Mary, what do you think is going to happen to that helium balloon when we put it in that very, very cold liquid? Well, it's going to get a lot smaller, because the particles in it aren't going to move around as fast, and so it's going to contract. All right then, okay, well, there there we go, let's see what happens. Chris, put it in. Okay, we're pushing it now into the liquid. Okay, so Chris is putting it in, and uh, Mary, uh, why don't you describe what's happening? Uh, Well, the balloon's getting a lot smaller, and, like, the liquid nitrogen's coming out and, um, like, bubbling all over the floor. Okay, yes, so as you said, you thought the balloon would get smaller, and indeed it has. It's shrunk down quite a lot, and um, we've basically taken it out and put it on the floor. What's happening now? Well, it's expanding, and it's just gently rising through the air. Yeah, that's right. It's basically on the ground, expanding, and now, finally, yes, it's floating up to the ceiling, as helium balloons tend to do. Okay, so, Chris, please explain to us what's happening there when we saw that balloon kind of shrink and then expand when it was taken out of liquid nitrogen. Well, Mary was quite right about the reasons why it contracted. Uh, It contracted because the air molecules in the balloon uh, went a lot slower. Uh, Now, a balloon is made of rubber, and the rubber likes to contract down, and it's being held at the larger volume by the pressure of the air inside. And when you cool the gas down, the atoms move around less rapidly, they bash against the walls less hard, and that produces less force on the walls of the rubber, and therefore the rubber is able to contract. When it warms up again, the opposite happens, the atoms start to move around a lot more rapidly, and therefore the balloon is allowed to expand. Excellent. Okay, now I do believe we have another balloon here, which we can also cool down, so uh, what's in that one? This one is just air. So we will expect the same sort of thing to happen again. The previous balloon contracted down to about a quarter of its original volume, and now we're going to do the same thing with the balloon full of air and just see whether that happens in this case as well. Okay, well, let's do that. And Mary, again, if you could describe what you see as uh, Chris has just plunged that balloon into liquid nitrogen. Um, Well, again, the liquid nitrogen is going on the floor and the balloon is getting a lot smaller, and it's actually getting smaller than it did before, so it's almost flat. Okay, and now Chris has taken it out and is waving it around in front of us. So what can we see in that balloon, that small balloon? Like, you can just see, like, some um, small amount of liquid, like, floating around inside the balloon. Yeah, that's very interesting. So what we're seeing is this this balloon which had air in it 
went very small when it went into the liquid nitrogen, but also when he, Chris took it out, we actually saw a, a small amount of liquid just in that balloon. So what exactly was that? Well, what that was was liquid air. And the reason why this balloon got a lot smaller than the one that had the helium in it is that in this case, the air actually turned into a liquid. Now, helium doesn't liquefy until much, much lower temperatures, but air actually turns liquid at the temperature of the liquid nitrogen. And what Mary identified in that balloon was the liquid air. Now, when a gas turns into a liquid, its volume reduces dramatically. And, in fact, the volume of the liquid is about a 700th of the volume of the air that was originally in the balloon, and that's why it was much flatter. Indeed. So we actually saw it go much smaller than a quarter of its original size, and that was because the molecules from the gas that was the air that was in there, and that still was the air, were actually squeezed together so much that they became a liquid. And, of course, that, as you said, it's a 700th of the size of the equivalent amount of gas that was inside the balloon. Okay, then, so finally, then, we've got an experiment which we can do, and which we can ask Mary to predict what happens. So what are we going to do, Chris? Well, what I've got here is a uh, Pringle container. This is uh, one of these things you buy in a supermarket, and uh, it's got no Pringles in because we ate all those between us on the way down from Birmingham. What I'm going to do with it is I'm going to pour some liquid nitrogen into the container, and then I'm going to put the lid on. And so, once the lid is on, Mary, what do you think is going to happen? Um, well, the liquid nitrogen is like, going to come into a gas again, so like, I think it's going to blow the lid off. All right, then. OK, well, let's give it a go. Let's put here the lid go. on and see what happens. And there it goes, yes. So uh, you can probably imagine at home what actually happened there. But, Mary, just tell us exactly what did we see. Like, we saw the lid of the Pringles can flying across the room. Absolutely. It flew gracefully across the room. It was great. So, Chris, yes, just explain for us finally what exactly did happen there. Well, it's exactly the same process as we saw with the balloon when we warmed it up. The liquid evaporates because the surrounding air is much, much warmer than the liquid air, and therefore when it evaporates, it expands, it takes up 700 times the original volume, and that's too much for the Pringle can to stand, and so the lid comes off. Uh, The one thing, of course, the reason for using Pringle cans is because the lid is a light plastic thing and it can blow off safely. And what you don't want to do is ever put something like liquid nitrogen into a container with a sealed lid, uh, in which case that could be very dangerous because it, it would it would explode and uh, you could suffer serious injury absolutely so as well as being the naked scientist as always we are the safe scientists so please do not try anything like that at home so anyway there we go thank you very much chris for coming down from Birmingham university and running that experiment for us and to mary for doing those predictions for us which i think all were correct basically so there you go how did you like the experiment it was really cool. Yeah, OK, well, thank you very much for doing it. And uh, we will be back next week. Thanks very much to Hills Road Sixth Form College for having us. And uh, it's goodbye. Thank you very much, Derek. And, uh, of course, there with Chris Muirhead from Birmingham University and Mary Burgess, who is at Hills Road Sixth Form College. Next week, our kitchen science crew will be in Norwich and they'll be learning about bouncing balls and why snooker balls don't jump off the table. You can try this at home. If you want to take part, all you're going to need is one of those really bouncy rubber balls a little bit of vegetable oil and a kitchen work surface with a tiled splashback, and that's important. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. We've heard in from Scott Orlow. Now, he doesn't say where he's set, where he comes from, but he says, I'm researching the 21 grams postulate from 1907. What can you tell me about it or refer me to in order to prove or disprove this urban myth? I actually had another call about this this week, two emails about this 21 grams business. Um, it's actually the... Well, it, it stems from 1907, as he says, and it was an American doctor who decided to try and work out how much your soul weighed because people for thousands of years thought there's some kind of life force or soul that makes us human. And when we die, uh, it leaves the body. 
And because it exists, it must be made of something, and because it's made of something, it must weigh something. So the easy way to find out how much it weighs is to weigh people at the moment they die. And then you'll find out if they lose weight. They Difference must actually... between when they're alive and when they're dead, that must be how That's much right. the soul weighs. So what he did was to recruit six terminally ill patients. He selected patients that wouldn't thrash around too much at the moment of death, because that would obviously skew his results a little bit. Wobbling around on the weighing scales. People who would die gently, yeah. And uh, he had this special bed balance made up that he put into his, uh, into his hospital and recruited these six patients and weighed them. Now, one patient did, at the, around the time of death, lose 20... Well, he says three-fourths of an ounce, which is, of course, 21 grams, which is where that came from. Now, he then published this in the American, in the American Journal of Medicine, American Medicine, okay. and it got picked up as the soul weighs 21 grams, or three-fourths of an ounce, and there was a massive splash about it. But actually, it's wrong, because if you go and examine the rest of his results a little bit more carefully in his publication, you'll find that there's been a little bit of bias in how he's reported it, because one of the people lost 21 grams, two of them were discounted from the study for technical reasons. Now, perhaps they didn't lose any weight, so because they didn't do anything interesting, they were discounted. A third person lost a load of weight and then put it on again. Oh. And then the final two lost some weight and then lost a load more, suggesting that perhaps they died more than once. I'm not sure. Well, who um, knows? But th this is where this stems from. And it just goes to show that if you do uncareful research, it can very quickly be picked up You've and really then be turns into a, a massive urban myth that people then pass our on because it's, it's intriguing, it's interesting, but it's actually got no decent scientific basis. Not the way to do it. Now, talking about American research, Phil. American research indeed. We're now going to head over the Atlantic for some stateside science. This week, Bob and Chelsea reveal how lasers are being used to spot cracks in, cracks in train tracks and how a new kind of super dishcloth could see the death of deadly bacteria. This week on Science Update, we'll talk about a new way to use lasers to keep trains on track. But first, Chelsea has this report about the latest advance in identifying biohazards. A new technology could soon move biohazard detection out of the lab and into hospitals, food preparation facilities, and crime scenes. Cornell University fiber scientist Margaret Frey and her colleagues created a special fabric that anyone could wipe over a surface. The fabric has special sites that could hold antibodies to just about any biohazard, including salmonella, strep bacteria, and anthrax. Basically, as long as there's an antibody available or... Um some kind of biorecognition agent available, we can attach that onto the fabric, and then the fabric will collect that specific thing. They're now working on ways to make the fabric change color when the hazard's detected, so people will know immediately. Right now, the white must be put in a developer before it gives results. The goal is to have this super simple and super instant. And so far, they can collect only one biohazard at a time. But they ultimately hope to collect hundreds at once, making it a powerful tool against all sorts of contamination. Thanks, Chelsea. Well, this tapping sound may sound like an old-fashioned news ticker, but it's actually a state-of-the-art laser system for inspecting train tracks. Structural engineer Francesco Lanza di Scalea of the University of California at San Diego is leading the development team. The system uses a trailer-like vehicle that glides along the track at up to 70 miles per hour, tapping the track with laser pulses at one-foot intervals. And uh, this tapping is like a virtual hammer that hits uh, just like if you were to hammer on a rail, then you hear sound going through. And distortions in that sound, specifically in the ultrasonic range, can reveal dangerous internal cracks that current technologies often miss. Repairing those cracks early could save millions of dollars and prevent derailments. Thanks, Bob. That's it for this week. Next time, we'll talk about the family tree of venomous fishes. 
Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thanks, guys. As always, if you want to hear more from the Science Update crew, you can go to the website at www.scienceupdate.com. Fancy listening to the Naked Scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. We're joined this evening, I'm very pleased to say, by the University of California, San Francisco's Gerard Evan. Hi, Gerard. Hi. Thank you for coming in. Pleasure. And we've devoted tonight's show to the subject of cancer. But lots of people know about cancer because one in three people die of it. But they don't actually t- necessarily know what it is. So what actually is a cancer? Well, cancer is actually probably the best example we've got of evolution in action. Cancer is what happens when uh, cells manage to throw off the shackles that normally restrain them and then start to expand. And as they expand, they evolve um, and they get worse and worse and eventually people die. But why is it that it's so common as a condition and why hasn't the body evolved? Because you said it's a great example of evolution. Why hasn't the body evolved not to develop cancer? Well, the first thing is it's not that common. Um, Though one in three people get it, cancers arise from single cells and the average human body contains something like 100,000 billion cells any one of which in principle could become a cancer cell. So in fact, um, cancers occur in one in 100,000 billion times in one in three individuals in 70 years, which is very, very rare. The reason so many people get cancer is you have so many cells and you live so long. Now, really, uh, cancer is suppressed and we have lots of mechanisms to suppress cancer that have been evolved. But, of course, they only work like all evolutionary selection works until we get to reproductive age. Once we've gone beyond reproductive age, evolution doesn't care. So You say that, though, but grandmothers have an important job, too. And I know this because I've recently acquired a new addition to my <laughs> family, and I can tell you grandmothers are quite handy. So there is some degree of evolutionary pressure to keep grandmothers in the family, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true, and I thought about this as well. Um, so maybe in millennia to come, humans will get um, less and less cancer because they'll be selected out because we want granny around. But we're so close to other organisms that don't live very long. And for them, uh, the next gen- the, the, the grandparent generation is pretty much irrelevant in terms of caregiving. Let's look at why you actually get cancer, though, because it's fair to say this is a genetic disease, sure. isn't it? And we know there are various genes, and we're going to be hearing about one of them from Kat Arney, who's at this cancer mm-hmm. research conference uh, this week, um, about a new gene for breast cancer shortly. But why should genes cause cancer? How, what are the mechanisms involved? What's going on? Well, the thing about cancer cells we've got to appreciate is that cancer cells aren't doing anything that normal cells don't normally do. So every time you cut your finger, cells proliferate very rapidly, they generate a blood supply, they recruit other tissues, they rebuild and they remodel, and they mend the cut in the finger. So you have all the machinery you need um, to become a tumour cell. The point is it's very closely guarded and reined in in normal cells. And cancer is a disease where the mechanisms reigning in those processes, those natural processes, uh, get lost or get eroded. And How does then, that happen? Well, it happens through mutation and through you know, um, cosmic rays and uh, various uh, nice things that you eat and who knows what, everything that's nice seems to be... the air that we breathe because oxygen causes cancer. That's right. I mean, um, we live in this nasty gas second only to chlorine in terms of how vicious it is. It's just that we've evolved to cope with it. But as I say, we've evolved to cope with it to reproductive age and not much more. James from Derby is, uh, James is in Derby, is listening to us and says he's just been reading Superhuman by Professor Robert Winston yep. this week and he said, I never realised that mitochondria, the powerhouses of our cells, produce the majority of free radicals in the body so these free radicals are obviously a source of that damage yeah no doubt about it the best way to avoid cancer would be to stop breathing or live in an oxygen free environment but it's just not a very good recipe for a lifestyle 
Um, there's no doubt about it that, that human beings, all organisms are a compromise. We live in this very dangerous gas. It does us a lot of damage, but it also happens to be the way that we generate energy. And mitochondria do indeed generate a lot of these oxygen radicals, the majority in the cell, and they cause a lot of problems for us as we get older. You made a good point, Gerard, which is that uh, you know we're protected from cancer up until a certain age. We have repair mechanisms to mm-hmm. stop this damage happening to DNA. How does that actually work? Well, uh, that's a bit of a mystery, actually, because, as I've said, as cancer cells are really only doing what normal cells are doing, you've got all these mechanisms that uh, prevent cancer, but how do they tell what's a cancer cell and what's a normal cell? And this is actually a deep mystery. We don't really understand that. What we do understand, though, is that when the DNA in the cell gets damaged, there are immediate repair mechanisms that come in and fix the damage, at least as best they can. The problem is sometimes they make mistakes, and that's when you get a mutation. So in some ways, you could say mending the damage is what causes the cancer because that's what causes the mutations. We also have another response to DNA damage in many cells, which is to just trash the cell. That's actually the best way of preventing cancer, but unfortunately, if you did that every time, you wouldn't have a body left. So when we actually look at what's going on in a cell, can can you just talk us through how a cancer begins? Because obviously you don't wake up tomorrow and you've got cancer. It obviously has to evolve from somewhere and changes have to accrue. So how does that process happen? Yeah, well, the clinical disease, of course, um, is the end point or a a sort of fairly end point of a a whole variety of processes by which time the cell, the individual cell that formed the cancer, has grown and multiplied and started to erode your normal tissues. The initial events which form cancer arise in individual cells, and they probably happen thousands of times a day, but they never get very far because we've got these powerful mechanisms that put the brakes on incipient cancer cells and stop them dividing very early on or kill them. What about spread around the body? Well, why do cancer cells spread around the body? Well, a lot of cancers don't, but the ones that bother us do. So um, the, the point is that cancer cells start in one particular site and they erode the tissue around that site, And then if they stay put, they're an operable cancer and they're not the things we're normally worried about. If they start to break loose and wander around the body and colonise elsewhere, just basically being acting like an independent life form, that's when we have the problems. Connor is in Tillingham. Hello, Connor. Hello. What would you like to ask Gerard? Um, I'd like to... uh, If uh, radiation is so dangerous to cells, and um, why don't they use it more for brain tumours? Well, can we take this in sort of two parts and say, first of all, Gerard, why is radiation bad for cells? And, yeah. and then also, how, how can we use it? Yeah, so radiation is bad for cells. Uh, I mean, there's radiation everywhere, so there's nothing you can do about it. But radiation is bad for cells. There are different types of radiation because you get these you know, charged particles or high-energy particles. They shoot through your body, through the cells. They damage the DNA directly, and they generate these uh, reactive species which further damage the DNA, and they cause mutations. Uh, most mutations don't, do you any pro- don't cause any problems, but very rarely you'll mutate a gene that's fundamental in regulating cell growth, survival, or where the cell moves and spreads, and then you're on the way to perhaps potentially forming cancer. So I suppose in that respect... Uh, radiation is actually very useful because in the right dose, the right place, you can use it to destroy cells, which is what Connor's kind of suggesting. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, uh, radiotherapy is used, very intense radiotherapy is used for a variety of cancers, including some brain cancers. Uh, Part of the problem seems to be that a lot of the cancer cells, by the time they've presented as a clinical disease, they pretty much don't care how much damage they have anymore. In order to become the tumour cell they have, they've had to throw off all the responsive mechanisms which would normally curtail a cell from growing once it's damaged and you end up basically with you know replicating glass beads that you can't do very much about. Well Connor I hope that kind of clears that one up for you. I do have an opportunity to give you a go at the quiz if you want. Yes please. Uh, A hare, that's as in a hare like a bit like a rabbit, can see what's going on behind its head. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Uh, Fact. 
absolutely true. Yeah. The position of a hare's eyes on the side of its head mm. actually allow it to see all the way to the back. Right. Well done. Next one. Just as the Earth is orbiting the Sun, the Sun is orbiting the centre of our galaxy, and it takes about a thousand years for the Sun to go all the way around the galaxy and back to where it started. Fact or fiction? Uh, fact. <laughs> so, unfortunately not. The Milky Way is actually so huge, about 100,000 light years, that even though we're going through it at about 1 million kilometres a second, it still takes 225 million years to complete each circuit around the galaxy. A little bit out there, Connor, but thank you for taking part one out of two, and you're in the lead at the moment. It's the Naked Scientists, Chris and Phil, and we're talking cancer this evening. If you have any questions for us, 08459 25 2000, text in on 07786 20 1960, or you can email chris at nakedscientist.com. We do, of course, have our teaser running, which is we want to know where in the home would you find acetic acid. And up for grabs, we've got your very own do-it-yourself planetarium kit, and we've also got some signed copies of my book, Naked Science, if you'd like one of those. Uh, we've heard from Marion in Wyndham, Ted in Harwich, Betty in Northampton, Bill in Whittam, Ruth in Halstead, I think, or Host- I can't read that, sorry, Petro. They're all right, as are Cherry in Felixstowe, Joan in Swaffham, Jim in Northampton, Jan in Bassingbourne, but Rosie in Belfast says the answer, acetic acid is vitamin C. No, not quite. Acetic acid is not vitamin C. Ascorbic acid is vitamin C. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. We're going to join now Kat Arney, who's at the National Cancer Research Institute Conference, who's in Birmingham. It's the largest uh, UK annual gathering of uh, researchers who work on cancer from around the world, and Kat's there at the launch today. Hello, Kat. Hello, how are you doing? Now, we're used to hearing you here in the studio, so it makes a change to have you sort of out and about. What's this conference all about? Well, the National Cancer Research Institute is a virtual cancer institute which has brought together all the major funders of cancer research in the UK. And um, first of all, we heard from Mike Richards, who's the UK's cancer czar. And he gave us a a really exciting overview of basically what the conference is going to be about and how we're going to hear from so many different cancer researchers over the week. Already we've heard from Fran Balkwell, who's here in the studio with me, and she was talking about uh, the fact that we seem to be entering a golden age for cancer research. Uh, We also heard uh, the news from Mike Richards that we're going to see £35 million given this year for the establishment of 17 new experimental cancer medicine centres here in the UK. And that's funded by Cancer Research UK and the Department of Health. And tomorrow we should find out where these are going to be. Um, we've also, we're currently sitting here in the back of the lecture theatre uh, listening to the clinical trials showcase and we're going to have new results coming out, uh, successes in bowel cancer and also in breast cancer. And, uh, and finally, we've heard uh, just today that scientists have discovered a new gene for breast cancer. So this is pretty exciting stuff because uh, new genes don't come along all the time. But this is a new gene called BRIP1. And uh, the researchers have found that this increases a woman's risk of breast cancer, uh, roughly doubling it. So uh, by the age of 70, your risk of breast cancer is about 1 in 12. And uh, this found that if you have a fault in this gene, BRIT1, you go to around a risk of about 1 in 6. And they found this by studying around 3,000 women. So How could we have missed it for so long, Kat, given that it is implicated in so many tumours? Well, it's, it's something that is known as a low-penetrance gene. So they think that faulty BRIP1 is found in around 30,000 women in the UK. 
But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go on and get breast cancer. They think that faults in BRIP1 actually uh, contribute to around 100 cases of breast cancer in, in the UK every year. And will this and, form part of the screening programme or is this just something at the moment of academic interest but not of clinical relevance? At the moment it's very academic interest but it means that we could potentially help to screen women in the future and it will also inform uh, the development of new treatments and uh, it's important to know about this. So uh, the other thing that's, that's really interesting is hearing Gerard in the studio. You might like to know that Gerard actually lectured me when I was an undergraduate. <laughs> it's a small world, isn't it, Gerard? Yeah. How, how old does that make you feel? <laughs> well, Kat, you know, I first met Gerard because I was interviewing him for something completely different, but, but on a similar field, when he was over in California. And we got talking to each other about two months ago, and I said, you're so good at talking about your subject, you have to come to Cambridge. And uh, he very kindly said, well, I'm yeah. going to be flying, you're going to Germany, isn't it, yeah. Gerard? Yeah. So he very kindly agreed to come via... Uh, Cambridge on his way to wherever he's going um, to talk to us this evening. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic to hear him back in the UK. Thank but you. you've also got some good news about uh, funding for cancer research in general, Cat. Well, generally, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, Cancer Research UK announced their latest funding figures. And, um, and in the past year, we spent more than £250 million on cancer research. And that's entirely uh, donations from the public. So uh, that's, that's absolutely fantastic news. And, uh, and also, as I said, Mike Richards has announced that there's going to be £35 million going into new experimental cancer medicine centres. So that's finding new drugs, testing them, getting, getting what we know academically about cancer. So all the research that people like Gerard do, turning that into treatments to make a real difference to cancer patients in the future. And uh, we've got Fran Borkwell here, who's um, hopefully going to tell us a bit more about how we can use this knowledge and actually make some, some real genuine progress in research. Yes, good evening, Fran. Thank you for joining us. Good evening. Now, Fran's obviously from Queen Mary's School of Medicine and Dentistry at the University of London, and she's, she's at this conference too. And Fran's normal work is on what causes cancer and what perhaps we'll be able to do about it. But we've heard from Gerard Can some of the mechanisms um, of where cancer comes from, are we in a position to start unleashing some really killer weapons against cancer? Yeah, I, I think that um, the, the two big things to me that have happened over the last 20 or so years of cancer research is first, as Gerard said, in understanding what cancer is, we know that cancer is a disease of gen genetic damage. It's damage to DNA. And when you know that and you know there are certain types of genes, not, not all bits of DNA are damaged, not all DNA damage causes cancer. We know what kind of proteins, if you like, are, are, are altered uh, when when there is a problem with uh, and cancer occurs, and it gives us new targets. It gives us much more specific treatments, and I I think. If you understand a disease, that's the first step towards curing or at least making a big difference to patients. I, I, mean, I want to just throw the cat among the pigeons a minute, Fran, because for the last, what, 50 years, we've known about the structure of DNA, we've known about the genetic code, and we know that cancer is a genetic disease, and we know even of some viruses that trigger cancer, but actually we've still got record numbers of people who succumb to it, and uh, we're very good at diagnosing it, but not terribly good at getting rid of it yet, or are we? I think that there are a whole load, and we're hearing about them at this conference, there are a whole Whole load of new targeted treatments that will will target much more specifically the the old treatments we've had for for cancer have been much more you know sledgehammer to crack a nut kind of treatments some of the new treatments that we have coming online now but it takes a long while each of those treatments has to be tested very 
carefully in clinical trials. And we, we all know that the problems that can arise with clinical trials, uh, they have to be tested very carefully in clinical trials in phase one with a few patients who, for whom there's no other treatment, then in phase two where you look for an effect on patients who are in a slightly better state, and then phase three when you compare them with existing treatment. This all takes a great deal of time. And remember that to develop any anti-cancer drug costs about a billion dollars. We heard just now about the amount of funding that Cancer Research UK is putting into basic academic and clinical cancer research, but that wouldn't fund a single new drug a year. You know, there's many, many reasons why it's a long lead time between understanding a disease and finding what would have to be a whole load of different cures because cancer is a whole load of different diseases. It's a very varied condition, but I suppose the £35 million pounds that Kat's talking about will come in handy there. And I've got an oh, email yeah. here from Stuart, who's <laughs> at Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Um, Stuart's in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, and he says, um, I, I live in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. My mum's currently having chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Uh, what makes her hair fall out? And is radiotherapy worse just because it's directed at one point in the body only? What do you think? Well, sure. Shall I answer this? It, the reason that, that chemotherapy makes your hair fall out is that... Um, the as Fran said, the current chemotherapy drugs we have are really, they're very aggressive drugs and uh, they kill cells that are growing fast. Now this usually means cancer cells which are growing fast in the body, but also things like your skin cells are growing fast, your hair cells are growing fast, the cells in your guts are growing fast and they also all get affected by the drugs and so that's why you get side effects, people get very sick and their hair falls out. And hopefully some of the new treatments uh, that people like Fran and others are working on are going to be much more targeted and will only hit cancer cells where it hurts and not affect the other cells in the body. So and Fran, what are the sort of um, hot areas that, that cancer biologists are focusing on at the moment in order to, to try to make more targeted therapies? Well, I, actually, what, what I was talking about today is something slightly different uh, and not hitting the cancer cell at all because... One of the things I was talking about today, which is one of the newer things, although we've known about it for a long time, but it's become more important recently, is that cancers are not just made of cancer cells. They're not just made of those malignant, out-of-control, over-evolved cells that, that take on a separate life form. What the cancers do is they corrupt other cells in the body that normally do a good job, that help us fight infection, that, call, that repair wounds, um, that heal damage. Um, they corrupt those cells and take them over to help themselves grow and spread. And, and, and the way that happens is a process very akin to a very mild form of chronic inflammation. And so another way of adding to the existing cancer treatments and, and maybe improving their action is to look at some of these, some of the drugs and some of the ways that we, we target chronic inflammation and see if that has an, an impact on cancer because many of the cells that you find in chronic inflammation and many of the um, chemical messages that pass between cells during chronic inflammation are also found in cancer. And that's a sort of, you know, additional approach and, and, and you know, some of us think quite an exciting one. I've got a very brief question here for you, friend. It's from Ian, and he says he lives in Ely. He's only 24, and he says, I was diagnosed with bladder cancer earlier this year. How did this happen? I'm only 24. Well, it's very difficult to talk about individual cases. Um, uh, but I think in, in general that... that I, th I think it's very difficult to say that. I mean, I just hope that, that he has very good treatment and, mm. you know, that it's a, it's a very... I don't know, but I'd, I I'd say it's, that's extremely rare, um, particularly in someone so young. The most common cancers in that age group are skin cancer, melanoma, and, and testicular cancer. 
So I think it would be very difficult to, to pin it down on any particular thing. Thanks, Kat. That was our own Kat Arney, who's at the National Cancer Research Institute Conference in Birmingham, which is the UK's largest annual gathering of cancer researchers from all around the world. And before her, Professor Fran Balquill from the London Hospital Medical College and St Bartholomew's in Whitechapel, London. The Naked Scientists, Chris and Phil, and this evening we're talking about the science of cancer. And in particular, we're talking to Gerard Evan from the University of California, San Francisco. He joins us in the studio, and Stephen's on the phone and wants to ask him a question. Hello, Stephen. Hello. What would you like to ask Gerard? If he said that all cells expand and want to grow and want to live, so why does cancer kill you? Why don't you just sort of end up as a massive, big, cancerous blob that lives forever, that, you know, rather than die? Yeah, well, that's actually an important question. One of the questions I actually ask my students when I'm teaching them is, why does cancer kill? Because it's not simple. I think what it tells us is that um, if cells don't grow in the right way and they start mucking up the blood supply and the nerves and the normal function of, of tissues, that your body can't cope and that's what kills you. So cancers basically erode the normal functions of your organs and your tissues. And that's why it kills you. And different cancers kill in different ways. So, in principle, if you could keep, um, uh, in fact, you can keep cancer cells going forever. You can take them out of the patient and put them in a culture dish, and as long as you feed them, off they go forever and ever and ever. There are some cancer cells that have been around for so long that that the mass of cancer cells in the world is something like a thousand times that of the original patient. So, in principle, you could live forever as a large lump, but I wouldn't want it. Does that help you out there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Did you say you had another question? Yes. Uh, I heard about um, an experiment that was happening. A woman was doing it. I was actually in the experiment where she said some people's blood fights cancer. And her idea was that once you've had an operation for cancer, uh, you then have a blood transfusion with this blood that fought cancer and to sort of mop out any little bits that they missed. Is that still going on or did that stop or...? Yeah, so the idea is that your immune system, which is the same thing that that prevents you from from getting infections and fights infections from viruses and bacteria, can also respond to any tumour cells that arise in your body. And it's something that people have been thinking and worrying about for about 50 years. Actually, I started my career off as a a tumour immunologist, as it's called, to look at that. I, I think the jury's still out. I think there's no doubt about it that you can raise antibodies and um, these cells that that, that kill um, uh, enemies, you can raise those against cancer cells. Whether or not you do that naturally or whether or not we can make it happen by manipulating things uh, is still not clear, but it's certainly a very promising area. And so in principle, the idea is sound. We just don't know how effective it's really going to be. Stephen, do you want to have a quick go at our quiz? Yeah, okay. Okay, here we go. As it burns up its hydrogen, the sun loses about 10 tonnes in weight every single hour. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Science fiction. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. It's actually a hell of a lot more than that. Um, You actually burn 24... Well, sorry, 10 to the power of 24 watts of energy produced by the sun every second, and that actually works out to about 5 million tonnes of weight burnt every second. Yeah, it's about 10 billion billion size will be nuclear power stations since we were talking about uh, nuclear power earlier. Uh, Not bad. Let's do the next question, Stephen. The comet that wiped out the dinosaurs by ploughing into the Earth about 60 million years ago was roughly 100 kilometres across. Do you think that's fact or fiction? Fiction. 
Yep, true again. Um, you, it was actually only a tenth of that size, so about 10 kilometres across. But because it was travelling about 50 kilometres a second, the impact was absolutely phenomenal and literally cooked the earth before plunging into deep freeze as it threw out dust and stuff that blocked out the sun. Well done, Stephen. That puts you in the lead with two points out of two. Thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Thanks. Bye. It is The Naked Scientist, Chris and Phil, and we're talking this evening about cancer, amongst other things. We have a teaser running. You have about five minutes to have a go at it if you want to have a go. Where in the house would you find acetic acid? In other words, what, what is acetic acid? Up for grabs, do-it-yourself planetarium or a copy of my book, Naked Science, which I'll even sign for you. We've heard from Mando in Peterborough, Jeannie in Essex, Parker in Hunstanton and Jean in Great Yarmouth. They're all on the right lines. We're talking this evening with Gerard Evan, and he's from the University of California, San Francisco. Gerard, you published a paper recently in which you had some very interesting things to say about how we might be able to make chemotherapy and radiotherapy a bit more comfortable for people in future. How does that work? Yeah, well, I think it goes back to this issue about why we aren't, aren't able to cure cancers. The truth is we can kill any cancer that anybody's ever had. We just can't keep the patient alive at the same time because we don't have a, a drugs that are sufficiently good at discriminating between the normal cells and the tumour cells. So one of the reasons for that is that a lot of normal tissues in the body turn over very rapidly and they're just as sensitive to the cancer treatments as are the cancer cells and sometimes even more sensitive. So if we could preserve those normal tissues and shut down their terrible responses, then we could deliver higher doses of radiation and chemotherapy to the tumour cells and actually perhaps probably uh, cure more cancers. And what the work that we did recently was looking at what the relationship is uh, between the, the mechanisms in cells that uh, respond to damage to the DNA and whether those are the same mechanisms, as is widely thought, as the mechanisms that prevent tumours from occurring in the first place. The idea being that if you've got a, a, a mechanism that responds to DNA damage by killing the cell, then it prevents you from accumulating mutations and becoming a tumour cell. But our data seem to indicate that the two are actually separate, very different and that you can dispense with the nasty bit, the DNA damage response that kills off all, all sorts of normal cells, and still retain the tumour suppressive functions of this particular protein, a protein called P53. I've got some general questions here, and thanks. Sure. That was a great explanation. Thank you very much, John. Um, this is from Portland, Oregon, USA, uh, and it's from Ralph. And he says, how are stem cells being used in cancer research? Well, stem cells are being used in very many ways. One idea, which is still an idea, is that cancers actually arise from stem cells. These are the small number of cells in the body that are capable of reproducing indefinitely. Most cells in the body don't. They're either differentiated or they can go a few times and then they cop out. So the idea is that cancer cells, because they can propagate indefinitely, arise from a stem cell compartment. Still a new idea, a lot of arguments about it, good arguments about it, but we really don't know. The other idea is that... Um, if you expose a patient to a, a, a severe therapy and you um, start to kill off normal tissues, then if you could keep the patient alive and repopulate those normal tissues, then the patient would make a full recovery. And to do that, you need to basically propagate the stem cells in the patient in those tissues. I want you to try and have a go at this one because it's been sent in by Owen Tanner from Eastbourne in the UK. He's an A-level biology student and I'd really like to help him because he said he's interested in knowing how mRNA, messenger RNA, right. from a gene gets from the gene in the nucleus out to the right place in the cytoplasm, the outside bit of the cell where the protein is made. Right. And you've got about... 30 seconds to do it, Gerard. OK, well, 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 we don't really know in detail, but what we know sort of happens is that the messenger RNAs, as soon as they're made, they're complexed in this protein uh, particle, 
and that particle is then transported in a system that requires a lot of energy through special pores in the nucleus and out the other side, where it attracts via a chemical um, reaction and congregates with the various machineries for um, activating synthesis of those proteins. If you're asking me how each individual particle gets moved around, that's the big mystery. How do cells know who they are and what they are, and how do the bits in cells know who they are and what they are? I wish I knew. So do I, because I'd probably have a Nobel Prize, which is, of course, announced this week to some wonderful guys who discovered the science of RNA interference. You've been listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, with Phil Rosenberg, and our guest this evening, Gerard Evan, and before that, Fran Balkwill and our very own Katani, who are at the Cancer Research Conference in Birmingham this week. Next time, we'll be zooming in on the science of eyes and the visual system, including how does the brain decode what we see, what causes colour blindness? Indeed, are dogs and cats colour blind? And can some animals see more colours than we can? So if you have any questions on any of those subjects or things related to eyes, then please email them to me, chris at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, thank you to producers Petro Minch and Anna Lacey, to Gerard Evan, our guest this week, Kat Arney and Fran Bulkwill, and Phil Rosenberg. And if you're wondering what you would do with some acetic acid, you put it on your fish and chips, because it's vinegar. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.